0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes. U. please visit us on iTunes.Villanova.edu.
1: I want to uh, welcome you on behalf of the Center for Peace and Justice Education and the Augustinian Chair uh, to this colloquium uh, that will be primarily Joshua Dubler giving some giving you some sense of the work he does and our <clears throat> Uh, after he talks a bit, I'll say a little bit about my experience of teaching philosophy, but not at greater— but not too much, because I, I, there are. Uh, we Joshua and I are, are both anxious to have a conversation about um, the implications <coughs> uh, for teaching, uh, coming from the challenge of teaching in the environment of, a, of an SCI. Uh, I'm not going to say much about. Joshua, I, I think, very highly of him, but i just sort of let that come out uh, in his uh, interaction with you. Uh, he had, His PhD is from Princeton. Uh, he, he taught a while at Haverford. Uh, he was uh, in the Society of Fellows at Columbia. I, I think most importantly for us, uh, he was uh, a participant in the villanova Greaterford program. And I will mention, uh, to give you some you know, context, the courses that he taught there, Event history, ethnography uh, in the spring of 2011, Freud, Nietzsche, and Dostoevsky in in fall 2009, and religion and tradition of social theory in spring of 2007. Uh, He also, for his uh, dissertation work at Princeton, uh, spent some extended time in the chapel there uh, observing and studying the the religious life. That has since come out in a really marvelous book uh, called Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. Uh, and I, I think it'll give you some sense of what went into this book, uh, but I would encourage uh, all of you to to check it out when you get a chance. And actually, I want to make this book available to the class I'm teaching uh, at Greater uh, this um, semester with, with Ron Hill. Uh, what Josh and I thought we would do is I asked him to, oh, I don't know, uh, say some things you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes. It can be less, more, depending on him. So you get some sense of, of the work that he's done in Greaterford and the kind of questions that he has uh, about teaching philosophy and theology and and, uh, uh, theology and religious studies at Greaterford. And then, as I said, I will just add a bit of reflection uh, of my own experience after he's done, and, and then we'll open it up for our conversation and comments and, and questions. So, good to see you. Glad you're good to here. See you. And Welcome. Um,
2: thank you, Jim, for inviting me down. And thank you to the, to the center uh, for sponsoring this. And thank you to all of you for coming out. Um, I think I'm just basically going to cover the same terrain that, that Jim just covered um, from, from my perspective uh, to give you an idea of how it is that I come to sit before you today with some of the commitments and questions that I have. Um, and I also, I'm, I, I come to you um, with, a, with a set of, uh, with an interest um, and uh, a commitment to, to, to prison teaching, but um, little beyond that. I don't have a, um, a philosophy of it or a, uh, a fixed notion of what the pedagogy ought to be, and I'm not even certain uh, as to why I think it's something that I'll, that I'll do in some form, or something that I aspire to do in some form for the rest of my life. Um, but th- those are some of the questions that, that you know, I think it, it would be great for us to begin talking about today. So, um, to start somewhere near the end, uh, I, I got a, 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 I collaborate with a philosopher named Vincent Lloyd uh, at Syracuse, and he is a serial beater of the bushes and brings a great deal of things our way. Uh, so, we applied for a grant from the, from the AAR, um, to run a one-day workshop uh, in Montreal this May uh, called something like Teaching Religious Studies Behind Prison Walls um, to try to bring together uh, people around the country who are doing this kind of work. Um, we are in, I think, uh, an era of, we're, in a, we're entering a new heyday of, 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 prison, of, of prison college programs. Uh, it, it's a new heyday that um, I'm excited to be a part of it. Um, I hope that some of, some of you are already a part of it. Maybe others of you will want to become a part of it. It is uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, the heyday of, 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 pri- of college programs in pri- prison, um, the neoliberal reboot. So in the, the, the earlier incarnation uh, between the 70s and the 80s when there were a lot of uh, college programs in prison, uh, a lot of that was funded by Pell Grants and, and the state was really kind of uh, on the hook in terms of the cost. Uh, IT SEEMS AS IF the IN THE NEW ERA um, uh, WITH THE BARRED prison, PRISON INITIATIVE BEING THE KIND OF um, uh, 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 REALLY um, THE MOST PUBLIC AND IN SOME WAYS LIKE THE the, the EARLY ADOPTERS OR THE TREND SETTERS IN THIS REGARD, YOU HAVE um, PRIVATE INSTITUTIONS uh, WITH FOUNDATION MONEY WHO ARE RUNNING THESE PROGRAMS, BUT um, but NOT SO MUCH IN PENNSYLVANIA, BUT IN JERSEY AND NEW YORK AND ELSEWHERE, THERE ARE there's SUDDENLY A LOT THERE ARE BEGINNING TO BE A GREAT DEAL OF OPPORTUNITIES FOR INCARCERATED MEN AND WOMEN TO, to GET DEGREES IN HIGHER EDUCATION. SO um, so WE WANTED TO BRING TOGETHER FOLKS WHO ARE DOING THIS TO BEGIN A CONVERSATION, BOTH SO AS TO FIGURE OUT HOW WE SHOULD TEACH WHEN WE'RE IN THESE these ENVIRONMENTS, uh, HOW TO DEAL WITH YOUR OWN ADMINISTRATION AND WITH THE ADMINISTRATION OF, of, of CORRECTIONAL INSTITUTIONS, uh, AND THEN ALSO, I THINK, IN SOME WAYS, um, separate from that or just to kind of build strength within our community um, uh, to try to mobilize, to, 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 to activate and potentially radicalize people where we are to, uh, to work toward ending this thing, mass incarceration. I'm not exactly certain what the relationship of the prison teaching is to that other political project. That's something that um, maybe we should consider. It doesn't seem like an obvious thing to me. That, um, that teaching in prisons uh, is necessarily going to contribute to the end of mass incarceration, but uh, I hope that it is. Um, so returning to the beginning, uh, I, I got my uh, doctorate uh, at Princeton um, and uh, my subfield was religion in America, but uh, I worked a lot with the philosopher Jeffrey Stout um, and I have leanings in that direction and uh, I wanted to do an ethnography about religion in prison and Greaterford uh, was willing to let me in. Um, Greaterford is not what it once was with the what it once was being um, before 1995 when 1995 there was this event that people still talk about whether they're administrators or guards or prisoners, they talk about this event called the Raid. The Raid was uh, right when Tom Ridge came into office he and uh, uh, his his deputy uh, of corrections, uh, who's now in California, whose name unbelievably I can't remember right now, um, uh, they uh, they they came in with the ambition to kind of radically reshape the culture at Greaterford Graterford was an exceedingly porous institution. Pennsylvania's institutions, compared to the states around here, are already rather porous um, to a large degree because of the Pennsylvania Prison Society, that in some sense uh, wrote up the charter of of the of the of the Commonwealth's uh, what used to be the Bureau of Corrections and is now the Department of Corrections. Um, you have a lot of pe- you have people coming in and out of the prison, official visitors, but then Greaterford had a ton of of volunteers coming in to doing all sorts of programming, and uh, there was uh, a lot of. Um, um, there was a lot of trade of contraband there, there's, there remains trade of contraband but in any case by, by 1995 Greaterford was wildly out of step with the times and uh, under Ridge they, they established what was kind of a they, they dragged Greaterford belatedly into the kind of contemporary culture of control and that would be have been, that was both belated and only partial. Um, Greaterford's culture is again going to be revolutionized um, next year or so. When they shut down this institution, at least they claim they're going to shut it down and move all of its inhabitants to a new facility that they've built at the cost of $400 million over the past few years. Um, I researched this book. Uh, maybe none of you have been down to the chapel ever at Greaterford, even though those of you who've been in the school. Um, it's. Uh, A wildly interesting place if you study religion if you study american religion um there are 12 or 13 officially recognized groups that over the course of any um, given week convene something like 50 uh, worship services bible studies um and musical uh, group rehearsals um so I, you know i spent a year and a half hanging out there i started at these uh these sites of public worship and I gradually started spending a lot more time in the offices where uh, something like 15 men, incarcerated men, work for between 19 and 41 cents an hour as janitors and clerks, um, along with five correction- 5 full-time chaplains, or four full-time chaplains, one half-time chaplain, and uh, two correctional officers. And uh, the book really came out of that experience, and. For Browns that experience actually of, of doing field work um, uh, it takes place over the course of one week uh, in January 2006 in which that that set of, of formal activities it provides the kind of structure the skeleton of the book and the men who work in the chapel are uh, the book's heart and soul these are the central characters they are uh, of the incarcerated men they are um, with all but with a couple exceptions, are, are serving the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Uh, as you may know, uh, Pennsylvania is a state where life is life. And where before, whereas before Ridge, there used to be a robust commutation system in Pennsylvania so that if you got sent to life, you might reasonably expect to serve on average 17, 18 years. Ridge changed the rules administratively, and since then, maybe one or two people have gotten commutation. So the central characters in the book have been in at Greaterford um, since the uh, since the 90s, and the 80s, and the 70s, and and in the case of, I'd say, the central character of the book, a mutual friend of ours, Charles Coley, has been in, in prison longer than I've been alive. Um, so the book is I uh, I won't say much about the book. Um, only that um, it's not a book that lends itself well to uh, to like job talks. Um, it's uh, it's it doesn't have a um, um, it, it, it refuses the idea that um, that I'm in a position that there maybe that there uh, if there is such a thing as religion we need to talk about what we mean by that um, if there is such a thing as the prisoner or prison culture, well, that reveals as much about us and how we configure that as an object as it reveals about them. And certainly, if there's someone to tell you the story about what religion in prison is about, that person is not me. Um, there are lots of characters in the book who will tell you what religion in prison is about. Uh, and I kind of curate their responses and act as a, an interlocutor and kind of push back to their responses. But. Um, uh, but the book is also um, not just a study of them um, uh, in a way that I hope is not uh, narcissistic or, 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 or self-regarding. It's a book about, um, about me, and it's a book about me um, as a, a, a secular Jew who doesn't necessarily know what the good is but is trying to figure it out and trying to figure out what the good life entails. And um, uh, it's me as a citizen of this of this society where we uh, where we incarcerate so many of our fellow citizens for so long and trying to figure out what that necessarily entails. But maybe for me, my favorite part of the book uh, uh, is on Friday night where I'm meeting with the Jews. And uh, for me, it feels different than the rest of the week because of something that has to do with being a part of a people or, or something. And uh, the, the most, um, uh, do you know um, uh, uh, Gary? I even, he was, he's not in the program. Um, uh, He's a very bombastic, uh, litigious Jew, both out of his kind of, um, uh, out of the, the, the rabbinic practices he engages in, but more out of being a kind of uh, an incarcerated intellectual who is a serial uh, 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 engager in the practices of litigation. And he's interrogating me on Friday night as to like, uh, there, there, there are other guests there who are there. And t- t- tell them about what your dissertation's about. Tell them what you're doing, and, and I say no, no, I, I don't want to. Tell them, tell them. Is is, is our tell them, is what is religion here? What is it? I, you know, it's what is religion is a is a category with a history we need to deconstruct it. Uh, I tell them, is, is our religion? Is our faith here real? Is there a real faith here? And um, and of course I thwart this. Uh, I try, I try to answer this question, but I only know how to answer this kind of question in a way that can only frustrate um, uh, Gary, uh, who's called Brian in the book. And I give him this set of, of possibilities, or I give the reader a set of possibilities, and he, he hates what I say, and he says, come on, what do you think religion is? And I say, not merely out of a lack of conviction or so as to rile Brian, am I reluctant to characterize religion too neatly. As I see it, rather than in the discreetly mapped forest, it is in the territorial mess of trees and shrubs, undergrowth and earth, where the stuff of religion takes place and if religion might be cleanly designated in theory, in practice it is a messy glut of particulars, with overarching conceptualization being just one of these many burls. As I fear, any attempt to sum up what religion at Greaterford is about would necessitate sacrificing the unruly breadth and depth of the chapel's religious practices for the overdetermined subset of elements that lend themselves to expedient summation. Quite simply, the world as it unfolds in time is far more extravagant and intricate than scholarly argument can possibly allow. If not theological per se, the devotion to describe this reality justly is arguably as close as I get And so there's a kind of refusal of standard um, scholarly methods of argumentation out of something like Um, an ethical or aesthetic commitment to describing things it's very quixotic and there's also a refusal um, to say what religion in prison is about because the categories that we come to that with especially with the ways that we think about prisoners as Define them by virtue of their crime and the assumptions we make about their surplus or their or their lack of sincerity. Consequently, uh, is I feel as though if I if I simply had an argument, it would only manage to uh, to reinscribe that kind of um, unthought uh, conceptual infrastructure. So anyway, so that's the book. It's a very quixotic thing. Uh, I, Give me five more minutes. Five minutes?
1: As much as you want.
2: Toward the end of researching the book, uh, a bunch of folks, um, uh, you might imagine. Um, so of the, the, the 3,500 men who are incarcerated long-term at Graterford, there's another uh, 500 or so men who are there for parole violations or who are just moving through on their way to, to Harrisburg. Um, uh, a, a quarter of them are serving life. And of that that quarter is, dis, is disproportionately um, uh, involved in, in the various kinds of, in the rich tapestry, again, not as rich and thick as it once was, but the, the rich tapestry of different kind of educational Therapeutic, social, civil society organizations. Um, if you're, you know, th- I think that at least if you listen to the the older f- people, you know, if you're there serving five to ten mm-hmm. years, it's, e- you know, even ten years, it's, it's, you can you can proceed as if this isn't your life. Uh, but the men who are there and, they, and who know at some level if they're going to die there, they they make their lives there, and so they're involved in a lot of different things. So a lot of the men that are involved in the chapel uh, are also um, kind of. Uh, hold down uh, the Greaterford program and 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 love the Greaterford program and uh, I mean the Villanova program, excuse me, and uh, have become the people who they are um, by participating in that program. And so a lot of them were saying, "Hey, you should teach in this program," um, and uh, especially uh, Mahmoud, Reginald Roan. He was he was pretty, um, but also uh, Mubdi, uh, Charles Coley. Anyway, so I I started to I was teaching in Haverford at the time. Um, and I, I, so I, I taught this class uh, in the spring of 2007, uh, Religion and the Tradition of Social Theory. Um, I assigned fewer pages than I would assign out on the street, uh, as, as the men in there would say. Um, it was a kind of, you know, uh, you know Eliade, Durkheim, Levi-Strauss, Geertz, so Marx. What's that? You're still so Princeton. Into a, sl- I'm still so <laughs> Princeton, but into a, into at the end a kind of like Marx, Foucault, Taussig, Cornell West. Uh, I guess I was trying to suggest something that I was a little more Marxist than Princeton, but finishing with Cornell West doesn't really establish that, now does it? Uh, um, uh, I didn't know, I was teaching for the first time at Haverford. So I was, in some ways I was a, a better teacher then than I am now. Um, in other ways I had no idea what I was doing. Um, uh, I, um, I knew, having been an ethnographer uh, and having known a lot of these men, I had the advantage of stepping into the classroom in a way that it wasn't just me stepping in with like a bunch of prisoners where they would be the kind of um, projection of whatever I would have brought into the room, uh, what I imagined about prisoner-ness. These were men. Uh, THAT WERE ALREADY um, MY FRIENDS AND IN MANY WAYS MY INSTRUCTORS. Um, uh, SO um, uh, THAT WAS A SIGNIFICANT ADVANTAGE. Um, AND THEY WERE ALSO, I KNEW WHO TO GO TO um, FOR, um, FOR, SO THEY COULD INSTRUCT ME ABOUT HOW NOT TO SCREW IT UP. Um, AND SO FOR EXAMPLE. I don't know what the culture is like here, maybe uh, undergraduates maybe cover your ears, but um, uh, uh, I was quickly, by people like Mabdi and by Stan Rosenthal, um, uh, great inflation was not gonna fly there. That was one thing that that if everybody was getting A 's, that was going to piss off the people who were doing really hard work and and so uh, i don 't believe in grades, but I believe in um, uh, speak I believe in like you know to speak the language of the community you 're speaking with in, in order to be heard and so I ended up just one way that teaching in prison was different is that I used the whole spectrum uh, of I, you know i gave i gave c 's on papers and stuff um, because that 's what was expected of me I, I knew going in that um, that one way that I was going to screw up that experience was that if I was still there as an ethnographer. So my instincts in the classroom already lean uh, toward, and I have a former student here who, who can tell you if this is true or not. But um, I, I'm a somewhat anal-retentive textualist. Um, I, uh, I, um, it makes me nervous if we're having a good time, but we haven't, but we're not talking about the text because then we might just have a good time all semester and never talk about the text, and then. And then the texts might never get read, and then the world might spin off its axis. Or I can't follow it all the way down of why that's important that we all do the reading. But uh, um, uh, I was I was a, I came in as a kind of rigid textualist. We need to understand these arguments, and um, the impulse of students that you have everywhere to kind of, uh, but especially in certain kinds of subcultures, to like to flee the text for their own experience. Um, that was something that I was very intolerant of. Um, in that way. Um, i uh i I guess i'm positioned already within a kind of debate i I, i'm not well versed in the debates of 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 teaching in prisons and the kinds of pedagogical issues but if i could if i could lay them out a little bit uh, if trying to make sense of what people think we ought to be doing when we're teaching in prisons um, there is uh, this kind of radical teaching camp uh, and this would be Exemplify that the program at Cornell is motivated by this. Um, maybe in some ways, Inside Out uh, comes out of, of this framework, but the radical teaching uh, seeks to um, empower students um, to, to to disrupt traditional kinds of hierarchies between teacher and student, and empower students and and bring into the a kind of like epistemological pluralism that would recognize a variety of different ways of knowing. Um, so that's the kind of more radical approach, and you can see the kind of political aspiration that comes out of, of that approach, that, that, that recognizes in our kind of entrenched hierarchies certain kinds of, of modes of social injustice that maybe it's trying to shatter from the ground up. Uh, the other approach, uh, which um, is the philosophy behind the Bard Prison Initiative, which is both. Uh, all over the state of New York, and in some way is the template for a lot of other kinds of liberal arts schools that are getting into teaching in prisons. What they talk about is, um, they call it concept critique, and it's slightly more um, disciplinary, and it owns the idea, it owns um, uh, the idea that like, as instructors who are trained in this, that we have a kind of uh, a method or a set of techniques that we uh, have to share with our students, Um, And that's what we're there to teach, and we're not necessarily there to foreground their experience, either as students or as prisoners, Um, but, 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 in as much as say, as a culture, we might think of the problem of crime as simply the problem of individual bad actors making bad choices by having thicker descriptions and kind of richer analytic frameworks for thinking about individual action, for example, we might come by, um, uh, uh, you know, frameworks that, analytic frameworks that might lend themselves to doing justice better as a, as a society. Anyway, those are two different frameworks. I, I, I only read that material this fall when I was trying to put together a supplementary gra- uh, grant application to Wabash uh, for this thing we're doing in Montreal. So I don't exactly know where I stand in it. Um, uh, but yeah, I taught these three classes. The first class was the religion class. The second class was um, the kind of stuff that I didn't manage to put into the religion class, uh, <coughs> the class on Freud, Nietzsche, and Dostoevsky. Um, you know, I loved, I, there's nothing I enjoy reading more than Freud and Nietzsche. Um, I felt like I needed uh, someone who gave religion something of more of a fair shake. Uh, a lot of the men who participate in this program are, are men. Uh, who have deep uh, kind of religious commitments, uh, mostly Christian and Muslim, but not exclusively. Um, and so I needed someone from the same kind of milieu, but who was more kind of friendly to faith. And so I ended up with Dostoevsky, and then Brothers K is too long. And so I ended up doing crime and punishment, and that felt really corny and presumptuous and weird, right? Um, at the same time, obvious and irresistible. So I don't know. Um, so I did that and then the, the final class which in some way um, and again my, I don't know what I was doing differently than I would have done on the street. Uh, one, well one thing I knew that I do differently was it's only a once a week class. they don't have access to the internet so their weekly papers. I'd have them write weekly papers and then I would start each class by going back to their papers right and so class was divided between what we did last week and what we did next week. It's something that you would never do in a class out here right if you have kids, papers on blackboard there's no reason you can't read their papers in advance of class anyway it's just one way that it was different Um, that the final class that i taught was for me amazing i think my students were a little underwhelmed but it was this class um event religion uh event event history ethnography and the idea was to look at texts that are structured around particular events so we started out by reading some theory. We read some uh, Badiou, for whom the event is the kind of cornerstone of one's, of one's ethics, of one's, one lives in the world in fidelity to an event, according to Badiou. We read Hayden White, who is a kind of philosopher of narrative and thinking about the ways that uh, that ideologies inform the way we read events and then the way we talk about events, figure our way of being in the world. And then we started reading some stuff like, um, <coughs> Richard Kapuchinsky's books on, uh, on the Iranian Revolution and anyway and then the Arab Spring happened and um, and Occupy was happening uh, no 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 Occupy was still a year away the Arab Spring happened and uh, so I threw out the syllabus and for a bunch of weeks I just like was compulsively reading the internet and like bringing them essentially the like the, the pre-processed real of the Arab Spring, and we were trying to read it and understand what was going on. And that got everybody excited about the question, um, why not here, if not here? And so then we spent the rest of the semester reading um, uh, reading about revolutions, and we read uh, The Black Jacobins by, by James, and we read um, a bunch of stuff. Um, and then I had them do their own kinds of, ethnographic historical projects, and some of them were about world historic events, and some of them were about events uh, in the prison, and uh, the results were <coughs> uneven. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, uh, um, getting to have taught, I, I don't know how many of you, I'll find out how many of you all have taught in the Villanova program at, at Greaterford. So it's it's among the most, you know, I, I can't fully disaggregate it in my in my mind and in my soul from the experience uh, of doing the fieldwork yeah. in the chapel. But uh, I've ne- I've never had such an amazing teaching experience, and the kinds of uh, relationships that you that you forge with with men under those circumstances are amazing. Um, uh, yeah, and I I hope to teach in prisons uh, for as long as I live. Um, uh, I don't exactly know why I don't know what it's necessarily uh, my intuition is that it's that it's good. Uh, I certainly think it's good for those of us in this room um, to to build bridges to to connect to this otherwise invisible population if indeed you are from a community where where prison populations can be placed out of sight out of mind rather than the missing people are felt in your everyday life so it's clearly good for my soul um, uh, I don't know why. I'm curious to know why you, why those of you who do it do it, why, why you, what what we're doing it for, how, if at
1: all, it relates to some kind of political project. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to make one comment about his book that I think is, uh, I, one of the most intriguing features, and I think it was very difficult to convey, is how much Josh puts into question his own philosophical, religious sensibility—basically, a religion of a pluralist, open, kind of secular Jewish intellectualism—that he does not spare himself um, his own skepticism. Um, in some ways, you were, you were more compassionate to to the guys than you were to yourself in the book, but it's. Uh, It raises some really, I think, profound questions, as prison teaching does, about what goes on in any classroom. Now, I'm going to keep my remarks to to about five minutes, because I really want to get into a conversation. And what I really want to do is kind of frame a question that I have no idea how to answer, but I'm hoping that maybe uh, together we can uh, get somewhere on it, if it's a question you find compelling. I started teaching in the Greater Ford Program in the spring of 2007, uh, and I owe my participation really to. A great mentor of the program, uh, Joe Betts. We had, uh, as uh, philosophers often do, a hallway conversation, where Joe basically mentioned the program and asked me if I'd be any, be uh, uh, had any interest in in teaching in uh, a maximum security prison. And because I'm a deeply reflective person uh, who always weighs the pros and cons, I said, sure. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm not sure, real honestly, what my motives were for wanting to be involved other than the fact I knew that I wouldn't know what I was doing in that environment. And perversely, I think that was a draw for me. I do remember the orientation session three hours um, uh, at Greater, for, before I would be admitted as a volunteer subcontractor, however they were categorizing me, it was sort of the opposite of a therapy session. A therapy session is designed to relieve anxiety. (laughs) This session was designed to invoke it. Um, So I left that session with two takeaways. One, uh, I was going to be deceived uh, often and systematically. And two, there was no way I was going to end up. I was going to avoid being on the wrong side of somebody's rules. That shook me up for a while until I realized, hey, I have the Augustinian chair. This is just the doctrine of original sin. This is just no different from any kind of, uh, uh, other kind of environment. Uh, the first, so I said, the first course I taught there was ethics, and the only assumption I, w- I brought into it was this, um, naive or not. If you were at the point in your life where, after probably several decades of uh, life in a maximum security prison, uh, you had the presence of mind and soul to be within a college level course, you've probably done some significant work on yourself. So, I wasn't going to venture an ethics course. Where the approach to the material didn't in some way represent significant work on oneself from the writer's point of view. Uh, so I ended up organizing the course around two texts, and I had actually the same problem with contrivance you had with Dostoevsky. Uh, I used Boethius's Constellation of Philosophy. Uh-huh. Boethius, uh, you know, philosopher who died 525, 6th century, uh, in a political he got on the he, he basically got in between uh, two agents in a power struggle and uh, real politic uh, triumphed over his idealism. He was he was jailed, tortured, and died. And he wrote the *Consolation of Philosophy* while in prison. Uh, and the other text I used as a centerpiece was James Baldwin, *If feels Street Can Talk*, which is also about a basically it, it's set up as a love story that then gets broken apart and. Uh, the male character ends up in prison, and you have a similar kind of uh, ethics of, uh, of transformation. I mean, honestly, what I, what I wanted to understand was something of the uh, problem. Understand the way in which the body and the body politic become prison houses for the soul. Uh, and you know, being in a physical prison and, and living there um, sets a context for what actually, uh, I certainly was surprised in, in, about in reading Boethius. Uh, in my experience with the, with the men in Greaterford only was, was deepened in this direction. The, the, the confidence in the soul, which allows the thought that even though you're in an internal prison and it's real and it's often being set up uh, for conditions that are less than just, out of conditions that are less than just, you nevertheless have the presence of mind to wonder about your own internal prison and be willing to look, take a good look at that and to dismantle it. Um, I think for me, the, the you know, one gift of teaching there was I, I, after doing it, really after the first time, but after having done it now for about eight years, I'm actually quite convinced uh, that the languages of philosophy and religious studies uh, are great cultural resources, <coughs> and they really allow for uh, the articulation of voice to carry across circumstance and limitation. Uh, in many ways, I think teaching greater fruit has given me a window into the crisis of the humanities. So, so-called what our culture calls unproductive individuals actually turn out to be in an extraordinary position to advance a language of soul craft. But here's where my question comes in. <coughs> uh, having t- I'm, and I'm teaching, I've gone back to Boethis in the context of a very different course that I'm teaching with Ron Hill called The Philosophy of the Social Venture, which, which Joshua Nunziato among others, uh, helped put together um, the syllabus. I find myself really haunted by the figure of Boethius the prisoner. This is the former professor who came to the understanding that there was something arrogant and self-defeating about thinking you could use your intellectual gifts to make another person good. And yet there must be something about the participation in the philosophical life and the life of faith, which for Boethius really came to be the same life, uh, that allowed some kind of illumination. In the middle of the consolation, where he basically has convinced his prison self that the world is not just a chaotic mess uh, out to um, exacerbate sorrow and suffering, but in fact he is a providential order but he doesn't simply allow himself that thought, he retells the, 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 the myth of, a, of um, Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, and I won't go into a great explanation of that, just to give you the the rough detail. Orpheus is a a great mythic poet, a rival of Apollo himself. So so, so, uh, a poet capable of extraordinary inspiration. Eurydice, her name means wide-ranging justice. And actually, for Boethius, that's an important detail. And in the myth, Orpheus loses (coughs) Eurydice to a snake bite. And she's in the underworld, leaving him to languish above. And he's brokenhearted. And he uses his power of inspiration to breach the defenses of the underworld and to rescue Eurydice, which is a violation of laws above and below. You're not supposed to cross this wall anymore. You're supposed to cross the wall between the prison and the outside world. This is supposed to be an absolute wall. But he gets a pass. He can go into the underworld, which for Boethius is a prison. Uh, it's the psychic image of the prison that he that, that he finds himself in. And he wants to reclaim Eurydice. Fine. As long as, on the way out, she follows him of her own volition, and he doesn't look back. Well, he gets nearly to the top, and for every reason, and Boethius doesn't say why he thinks this happened. He turns around to grab Eurydice and loses her again to the underworld. So that's the mythic image. Here's the question that keeps me up these days. Um, I no longer am comfortable simply going into greater for teaching a course and coming back. Um, although ultimately I know very little, the little I know is too much. Uh, I very much am aware I'm teaching in an environment where injustice (coughs) is manifest. I think I've styled myself as a kind of Orphic philosopher. You know, keep your eye on the illumination, the inspiration, and justice will follow on the way out. I have a lot of sympathy with the Orpheus who turns around and tries to grab justice and pull it out. Now, I'm not naive in the sense that I think that we live outside of a prison in a just society. <laughs> it's just in your face when you're in the prison. My question really is how, and this, is, and this goes back to actually I think where, where, where Josh started <coughs> off, um, what is it are we called to do in this environment? Know, I mean, you go in there and you're like, you know, would you like to see mass incarceration And well, you don't have to teach very long in a prison system for that answer to be? Yes, of course. But what's the relationship between working for justice actually to change or transfigure institutions so that they mediate different kinds of possibilities, and the sort of <coughs> things we are normally given to do? as professors. Uh, I think both things are important. How they relate, uh, I I don't know. To me, it's a much broader question. It's a question that Villanova very much takes on, of the question between service and the life of the mind. Greater Cruz very much underscores that question, and I don't have an answer, but I I will leave it at that. Uh, Please, the floor is open for comments and questions. I'm just grabbing
3: a water. Yeah, you can't leave. Um, My name's Joe Betts. I'm a Villanova retiree from the philosophy department. Retired in May 2011. I was here for 45 years before that and taught at Greaterford 12 courses over. 21 years between 1989 and my last course was in 2010. But one thing that you would find interesting is that the first course I taught, they had no classrooms in the education wing, and so I taught it in the mosque. The mosque was under the chapel, and it was, you'd go down winding stairways through very dark halls before you got there. And of course, the mosques are pointed towards Mecca. So in modern building, you know, mosques might have their end in a corner because that's the direction of Mecca and not the wall. But at any rate, I'd go to the far wall with my shoes off and I'd teach. And occasionally, inmates who simply wanted to be in the mosque would come in while I was teaching a class in my socks writing on a portable blackboard and uh, I was very much impressed by their devotion uh, as a catholic I'm used to catholics who would go into a catholic church in the late afternoon and pl- pray before the blessed sacrament as if they're really in the presence of god and I got that strong feeling when these guys would come in they'd ignore me lecturing they would do their uh, bows, way of praying, and you'd see guys, in, not infrequently, with uh, calluses on their forehead from touching the ground as they pray. But I was, I was very impressed by that and liked a lot of the guys that I knew were Muslims. Uh, I found out eventually that there were two different Muslim groups. One, I think, were Americanized Muslims. Were they followers of Mark, Malcolm X? That or there's the larger group,
2: I, I should say that of the da- the down and down in the chap pre- refers to a lot of things but refers yeah particularly to this world that used right. to exist that it was shut down in 1995. The two, the two main factions um, which to some degree <laughs> exist to this day are, are those who at one time were in the nation of Islam and the followers of Elijah Muhammad uh, he died in 1975 and his son Wallace Warath Dean converted them. Um, uh, they convert it on mosque to Sunnism, but they retain a kind of um, activist, uh, sociologically minded uh, ethic. And the other group comes out; they emerge geneal- genealogically from what, back in the day, was called Orthodox Muslims, which is to say, in the in the at the time when the Nation of Islam controlled much of the uh, the imaginary for mm-hmm. Americans with respect to Islam, they were Orthodox and. They um, uh, moved further to the right beginning in the 80s when, when African-American men from the mid-Atlantic started going over to Saudi to study and coming back. And, and they now primarily identify as Salafi. And they, and they have, in some sense, won the culture war in Philadelphia so that their mode of, of practice is the one that
1: dominates. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, at the time I was there, the one, the group that came from the Nation of Islam had about 400, when I asked the question, and the other group only had about 40. And what was distinctive about the second group, the Salafis, if they are, was that it was important to them to learn Arabic and to read the Quran in Arabic. And they wanted Villanova to send in teachers of Arabic. Did we ever do that? Yeah. We did? Okay. But that was very important to them. Eventually, the prison took the mosque out of the basement because I think there are so many corners and places to hide and do bad things, that they brought it up and they built a little wing adjacent to the so-called Christian chapel. Uh, The Christian chapel, which has Catholic and Christian services, is one thing. The former choir loft has been converted into a synagogue for maybe 14, 15 Jews who were worshiping there. Five? Down to five, with Stan Rosenthal, principal of but and worshiping okay but these are I, which isn't to say that they're
2: they're sitting there and like drinking coffee and arguing about things mostly <laughs> but the new mosque is um, um, Jewish worship
3: a, a very bare room uh, adjacent to the chapel and everything is very visible in it, and there's no corners to hide or anything and a lot of light in it uh, if I may say one other thing uh, Josh is, why do people want to teach there? And here's my reason, if, if you've read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, before that was written, I believed her main argument, you know, that blacks, especially in the United States, get a very, very bad deal. You know, when they were free, they were not given full freedom, full freedom might have been more fully free if they were given each 40 acres and a mule. But when you take people out of slavery and say you're free, you're like the freedom that comes from being able to sleep under a bridge at night during the winter. That's the kind of freedom you have. Not the freedom that comes with a job, with prosperity, with a way of making a living. So that's why I wanted to start teaching there. And once I started teaching there, I really liked the guys, and this is interesting, but it was good for my ego or bad for my ego because if I taught the same course to undergraduates at Villanova and to the guys in Graverick, I got much better course evaluations from the guys in Graverick. Now, I say this is selfish and egoistic and what have you, but uh, and I don't blame the undergraduates at Villanova. If I tell them I'm I'd love to be a member of a Social Democratic Party in the United States. Democratic Socialism is what we should aim for. That puts, that's putting off. People, undergraduates, would call me a communist or say I'm an American hater because I teach the ethics of war in which all of the texts were critical of American wars. And I don't blame them for that. But one last thing, and I promise you I'll I'll shut up. Um, In teaching philosophy of criminal justice at Gradyford, For several years, I used Helen Prejean's book, The Death of Innocence, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S, meaning the death of innocent people. Her first book, Dead Man Walking, was about her counseling two men who were guilty, who weren't innocent, who died. Her second book, The Death of Innocence, was about her counseling two men who almost certainly were innocent, and our system put them to death. And I wanted them to see that a Catholic nun could be like this. I'm very Catholic in background, culturally, and I'm a church-going Catholic, and I, I wanted to see them to see that this Catholic nun and a lot of other Catholics were on their side. Well, uh, I had an interesting experience after I was teaching there on meeting with the Lifer's Club, and the thing that steers to the Lifer's Club is that there's no longer automatic, life, real-life sentences. Uh, Death by incarceration, they call it Real-life sentences. They want to get rid of that in Pennsylvania. And I'm talking to them, and I get an idea. And the idea is this. Um, Helen Prejean, the nun who wrote The Death of Innocence, did something very significant for the Catholic Church. She got the Vatican, probably, to change the Vatican Catechism so that the Catechism of the Catholic Church now opposes capital punishment. At any rate, she got this change, and she's had a very big effect in the United States. So my idea is, hey, I'll write to her, and I'll say to her, you've done a lot to change the death penalty into life imprisonment. Now do something to change real life imprisonment into 25-year terms or the equivalent of that. Please, please, you're a very influential person. The movie that you had made did a lot of good in the world. You can take another step. See, you've, you've taken a step which has put in a lot of people who would have been put to death into life imprisonment, real life imprisonment. Take another step. Do something to get out of, to get all these guys in Pennsylvania and six or seven other states that have real life sentences, get them out of Death by imprisonment. Uh, I even had a backup in this. Uh, Father David Cragen, who's the head of the theater department, staged um, Dead Man Walking here. He staged it. I went to see it in St. Mary's Chapel. And as he was staging it, he said he was in contact with Helen Prejean about it, and she visited here. She visited him. And by the way, when she did visit him, I remember. <laughs> walking with her from the field house back to here and lending her my coat because it was cold in November. She didn't expect it. But at any rate, she doesn't know me personally, and she did not answer my letter. And I'm, I'm so disappointed in her. And it's unfair of me to do so. She's already done a lot of good. But if she had read my letter, and by the way, I published my letter in uh, um, the Catholic pacifist group in Philadelphia's newsletter. Uh, Joe Bradley, supervising a former Augustinian priest. But anyway, I'm, I'm so disappointed in her, but it, it showed me a failure of where a religious person could have helped people in Great Britain. Enough, I'm sorry, it took so long. That's yes, all. So Joe, I, so, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to talk, but it's probably going to be rambling because um, I've taught
2: it
4: at for about six yeah. times over the years, and I struggled with the questions that we posed. I kind was of like, what's going on here? Um, I don't know if I have an answer, but um, the first class that I taught there was uh, oppression and liberation. And I, you know, I was like, oh, this sounds like fun. This would be a good course, you know? But then I got up there and I was like, oh my God, I'm in a classroom. 35 men who live this kind of oppression, you know. And it just, like, shocked me all of a sudden, you know. Again, I was very naive going in there. And the men came up to me in the beginning of class, and they were like, don't worry, we have your back. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, why? Because I went through that orientation Mm -hmm. too, but I wasn't scared, I just, you know. They gave me a whistle.
1: Yeah, I still
4: have my whistle. Yeah, I still have my whistle, but don't ever attempt to.
1: Yeah, no, I think I, I, I did, did that, that I once.
4: Think. I like pretended, and they all panicked. Don't ever do that. But it's not funny. So i was like, okay. But anyhow, um, the, I keep coming back to what what is it? Um, because I, I felt the same things. I I'm walking out there, going, I feel closer to these men than to my good friends. I don't know what it is. But the only thing we come up with is there's there's like the pretenses of of our identities are gone and our humanity is just bare and open so that, that, that it's that coming together of that two humanities
1: yeah.
4: in, in this unpretentious way like, I don't even know what I'm saying but trying to struggle, struggle with that that um, it's just humanity to humanity.
2: How do you account for that?
4: No, I don't know. Um, I, I, I mean, I've even done classes where I brought Villanova. I taught the same class at Villanova and taught the same class there, and then for four times we came together, and this I had the same experience. It was like for those two hours, it was a different reality.
5: Right.
4: It was. A, it wasn't a prisoner and a professor. It wasn't a Villanova student and a prisoner. It was
2: person to a person. So I, I, I want to hear, I, I hear how precisely you think that happens because something that I observe and I would certainly put my experiences within this rubric and, and in some way this was like it was super, it was more acute because I was there as, as first as an ethnographer and, and, and when you're in the field as an ethnographer, it's kind of like uh, the experience of life plus. Right, in the way that um, because like your world is saturated with narrative and, and like the, the world is pregnant with significance because you're writing everything down, right. And that, and that was all the more so in the prison, right, because uh, if, you, if you leave at the end of the day, whether it's with academic volunteers or whether it's with religious volunteers, there's some like the, the kind of the there's, there's an acute intensity of being in that space that invariably engenders something that feels significant and transformative to those who come in from the outside, right? And, and so then what, what account do we give of that? So I, I try to make sense of it. So um, these courses mean so much to these men. The subject position of student that these men get to occupy when they're in that room is, I think, such a relief for them from the other kinds of subject positions they're forced to occupy.
4: Well, um, they're able to be a human being in
2: that
4: classroom. Mm. They're not a number anymore.
1: Yeah, and I think it goes both ways. I think you had such an insight when you said that there, there is something with the persona go off. It's, it's it's our side as well. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. you can go in there and pretend like, you know, you're professorial mm. and you've got the authority of an institution, but it's something ridiculous. It, 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 you ends up feeling ridiculous if you well, try that. Well, it's not good. Right. And and they and they, and not they, right and they're, and they're, and they don't have to, within that context, you know, have to play the usual roles they play out, you know, in prison at large. So there is a kind of suspension of roles, at least for a time. I don't
2: dispute this account. I merely want to sociologize it, which is to say, how freaking weird. That we have these these institutions of mass incarceration, where those of us who aren't incarcerated get to go to become human beings temporarily. Exactly.
6: Is, how
2: freaking yeah. weird is
4: that? See, and I, I guess because it's it, Sorry, go ahead, Joyce. I look at I take it out of my own religious Christian context of the idea of um, you know God's plan of the the reign of God, the kingdom of God, that we're all equal here. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is the only place I get to experience this.
3: Yeah,
5: well, no, I mean, I just think there's something significant in the fact that it is constructed so that it is a place that you cannot take humanity for granted. Right? Right. I mean, that that is how it is constructed. That is the logic Absolutely. of the place. Yeah. Right? And so, because, the, I mean, the irony is that on the outside, we think we can take humanity for granted, but actually very few people are being very human. Right. Um, and the inside, <laughs> the, the whole point is, that, I mean, de- it works by dehumanization. Like it just, nope. it can't exist otherwise. And so everything becomes laden with this sense of you're making a choice for or against your own humanity and the, the humanity of people around you. So even so, I mean, this when I my first time in prison was the year after college. When I was um, I was actually very leery of prison ministry because I, that seemed um, like it was going to ex- exploit and have this cheap faith, and I just wanted nothing to do with it. So some of my friends were involved in it. I just wanted to teach math and because I love <laughs> math. And I mean, like, but I mean, so we're just trying to figure out positive and negative integers. It is a human triumph. I mean, like, so. And I mean, I mean, I try to create that in other math classrooms, <laughs> in the world. But I mean, the fact is that there's every there's it's everything has this this narrative underneath it, which is about this ultimacy of, of declaring your humanity or not. I mean, and that's what really is so absolutely compelling. So
2: can you flesh it out then? So is yeah. it like, so it, there's this kind of these we describe. The, my experience is same, same at the orientation, where there's like this production of the non-human institutionally. So is your account that like no, but humanity is is like there is a kind of a priori humanity, and so therefore <laughs> the experience of going to the prison is to have that institutionalization of demonization fail. Is that is that the account you're giving? Like that it, it fails because at the end of the day, th- these are humans, or is there something because that would, be a, that would strike me as a strong claim.
5: I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't fail nearly enough. But, I mean, it, but it can't, um, I don't know. It doesn't win the debt. It, it, it it, it's not the end. But there's, there's a there's desire to, I mean, there's something, I mean, there's something else there besides what you're being told is there. Right. right.
2: Let me try a thought experiment. Okay. How many of you all have taught at Gradyford? Is, is just a, okay. Here's the thought experiment, and I, if my students on the outside, brought it, the way that my students at Greaterford brought it, I would feel similarly uplifted by being in the classroom on the outside. True or false? Honestly, 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 honestly. True. True. All of us say true. True. All of us say true. You're not a little bit skeptical of the kind of like. The, the, the fairy dust that comes with the, the cinematic element and the kind of the place apart and and that kind of like the way that this, this space of separation engenders a kind of specialness. The You're fa- willing to. The
1: fairy dust is all over the place. It's not just in prison.
2: So you think that like, so it's the intensity, because I'm tempted to, to go along with this, that like that the experience of the, the amazing encounter comes from that like the experience mostly in the classroom is like you bring this like earnest, Overly enthusiastic vulnerability, and one or two students like meets you in intensity, and like you love them for it, but ultimately you end up feeling a little bit of shame for having like let it hang out, you know. And like there, it's like it's actually you you get more than you give, right? Yeah. It's a bit utopian this account, but yeah.
5: But I think I would
6: argue to say that there's only the chance for that fairy dust to occur in like, a very small amount of classes? Like how do you bring that into like intro to biology or like an upper level chemistry class? Like there really isn't room for that same sort of debate. So how do you bring your humanity into like a hard science rather than something like a criminal justice class where you have the chance to debate humanity and debate theology and to with, talk about yeah. these human experiences. <laughs> <I'll speak>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> the
1: molecular biologist will be. speak. Clay was math. Yeah, the was a No, <laughs> she's, she's got Adam all kinds her of science degrees. That's really. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, com-
6: I come from like the hard sciences and my right. undergraduate yep. experience also. And I took a minor in peace and justice for the exact reason that like I don't have that, I don't know, that same sort of connection with my chemistry professors that yeah. I have with someone who teaches ethics or theology or something else that is like a more human
5: experience? But, see, I I don't think that I, I don't think it needs to be explicit. I mean this is why I mean so I'm a theologian now, but I wasn't molecular biologist, and for the same reasons because I mean the 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 pursuit of trying, I mean how how in the world does one cell Become this human being. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it's it's ridiculous. So I, ju- I mean, to, there's enough there's enough wonder and in the pursuit of this mysterious truth. It's just as mysterious in the sciences as it. it I mean, it's when we pretend that it's not mysterious that I think we lose it. it the mysterious the science is just in math. It's, it's just as mysterious and amazing um, as some of the the arts and you know the humanities. I mean, and it just, you know, knowledge, truth. I mean, so, you know, I think it's all, you know, I'm, I like Thomas Aquinas, and I, I mean, it, if it's truth, then it's revelatory,
4: right?
5: right? And, and that's regardless of the methodology in my mind. So that's, to me, it's all possible.
2: This is kind of what I, was, what I was going for in that passage, but so like you're saying that like, like pedagogy is a, is a devotional practice, right?
5: And, and frankly, I mean, like, so I've had a. I taught at a. a school for at-risk youth. Um, there, I mean, whatever. Every kid had different stories, um, and. We were we lived in community with about eighty students. It was not a prison at all. They were all there by choice. It was not somewhere you'd be sent. Um, and I just, you were given the freedom to deeply love. These students. Right, and to be in relationship with them and for them to love you back. And there's something about the intensity and the the magnificence of that teaching experience that also tracks to my teaching experiences in prison. Because I mean there is this this freedom of of this uh, authentic relationship that is allowed to I mean you use the word love, right? I mean that's, that's a sort of scary word. Yeah, you do. Yeah.
2: So, um, (laughs) so certainly, so there, there could I can imagine a hard line, um, a hard line opposition to mass incarceration that would look at these pleasures we're describing as like filthy pleasures and say like How dare you take those pleasures? I'm not of that position. Um, So like there, there are these, there's this population that who we have the opportunity to teach and to have these kinds of experiences that are for us extraordinary and that for them might do something in the way that the extraordinary experiences we have as teachers engender some kind of a complementary experience for our students. But um, is it is it doing anything politically? Like you have, that is it, are we doing something? Uh, you have this, this, it seems like you have an itch. You, your itch is that it's not, it, that it's insufficient, or?
1: Well, I mean, I, I have, Catherine, your sense that, you know, to get to the point where, where you know, humanization comes in, it, it's not necessarily a discourse that's explicit about the ethics of humanity. It's actually all the normal defensiveness, anxieties, and guards go down for long enough that you can enter into an adventure with other people about a destination of the good that neither of you really have marketed, understood, mastered ahead of time. And Joyce, one of the things you said, I it really, struck, I, I, this really struck me the first day I was at Greater and I, I'm sure I looked like a deer in headlights. And Andre Davis came over to me and basically said, similar. I think you might have used those words. You know, we, I have your back. We have your back." And of course, what it was is, you know, I know you. Did, basically, it was like, I know you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing either. You know, you can trust this space. For whatever can happen to happen, and you know, I, I think you know I, what you were saying about the sciences. I think is really important about sort of. I said kind of without thinking as much through, but I, but now I'm willing to say there's something more to it. But if we want to understand the crisis of the humanities, which is not just a crisis of the humanities, it's a crisis of education per se, and it's actually a crisis, crisis of, of our politics, civilization, right? <coughs> we're actually it's a crisis of our politics itself that really. The, 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 the obsession with work, I mean, look, the nice part of it is you want people to have some self-determination in their lives, but the work we're talking about is not, it's not a spirited notion of work. And as this becomes more and more, you know, we, you know I, the resemblance between life inside a prison and life outside the prison is not as, it, it's closer than I think we would be comfortable of, about. As far as the politics goes, I mean, of course, you know, look, I've watched enough movies, I would just like the institution to disappear, right? But I think one political aspect, I don't know how, I don't know ultimately the significance, get against, but I think it's important, is you're in that classroom with men who have been told that they don't matter, that the best they can do is plug in some BS demoralizing job that pays nothing. And, and, and it's going to be reinforced to them. It's even going to be hard that mainly they'll probably have to be in prison to get that lousy job You know, right. And actually, what happens is nothing you do as a teacher. What happens is over the course of a term or several terms, you realize what's happening is those same men are, are themselves becoming teachers. That is a whopping contradiction in our politics. If it got out. <laughs> it would be harder to sustain a lot of the institutional ideology that makes, frankly, American education so demoralizing. And, and, and I think it's continuing on that path. And I, I, it's not, I'd like to, you know, what I really want is for the walls of those prisons to be more for us. Uh, and and, and it's, again, it's not just to help the men inside. I never really went in with the idea I was helping them. It's more like, you know, we need, as a culture for whom this wall actually is a disease, we need to understand what the disease is, all of us on both sides of the wall. So that's the sense in which it's become, you know, much more political for me. And not in the the stupid notion of politics we often talk about, in, in this deeper philosophical notion of really what it means to constitute a community. So that's the sense of which uh, is, that's my niche.
7: Dan, hi professor. Um, so hi, Dan. <laughs> it's been a while since I heard that. Um, so I'm a relatively recent member of the Villanova community. I've only been here about seven months. Um, well, one thing I've noticed, and I don't want to demean any undergraduates in the room, but a lot of the undergraduates here seem to be here purely for getting a job afterwards, which isn't a bad thing. We said we want self-determin- self, self-determination. But when I went to the career fair a couple of weeks back, and I just walked around, and I looked at the kind of people who were here recruiting, almost entirely finance, military industry, things of that sort. Not a lot of go out and do things for the public. good. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't recruited from here for Teach for America and service projects, but I did notice they really weren't represented at all. I think there was only one booth for teaching.
4: They have a different
7: one. Oh, they have a different one. OK, because I, OK, well, that kind of takes away the point of my comment, because I was really, like, scared for the fruits of humanity <laughs> after seeing that. <laughs> but what it made me think about was the need to articulate more than just getting a job, and the need to inculcate, not it's not just citizenship, it's the appreciation that there is more to a university. A university can do more than just get you a job. It can preserve the arts. It can preserve culture. It can have a civic project, which seems to be what you're talking about in the prison. And, you know, a lot of the people who go to this school and a lot of other ones of this kind are extremely privileged. They've They've never needed to question. They've never had the arts taken away from them. They've never had the humanity taken away from them. So they've never needed to question its value. The sad thing is you have to go to an extreme situation to find people who actually do appreciate that. So, it just becomes a cultural question, because like, I don't want to send the whole, you can't send the whole population to prison, you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to make the country live through a despotic regime where it would feel like we're all living in a prison. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder, what is it going to take to make people think differently about what a university can do, what it should do in relation to displaced peoples? I there's no easy answer there.
2: Well, it's not merely the relation to displaced peoples, it's the relation to those values other than work and making a living. I mean, this is, which is important, but it's not the only yeah, thing. Yeah, no,
1: I Yeah. Am, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, no it's about, there's, all, there's an old ancient Greek proverb, you know, don't be like the fool and have to learn from your own suffering, only from your own suffering. And I mean, you know, that there are models of education that really have to do with, with beauty and there's models that have to do with finding meaning and suffering. And um, you don't want to set up where you know, the culture, is, you know, seems to be choosing that it's going to take all its lessons from software.
2: Those of you who are here, I mean, so I think thus far we've only heard from people who taught in the program, but that shouldn't be a prerequisite for speech. I don't. Um, presumably, you're here because you're interested in in social justice or in teaching or in prisons
0: or. I I just I find it a little frustrating that you know we're almost only focusing on the internal aspect of what's going on inside the prison walls and that system and I guess just to frame it myself I'm I'm currently a, a master student in the counseling department I'm counseling as a I'm a clinical therapist at a place called St Gabriel's Hall for juvenile delinquents and. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously been really difficult. I can relate to all this. I've tutored in prison for two and a half years now. I went to Princeton myself and worked with the PD Green program. Um, And just thinking about, you know, the system outside of the walls, And I can just draw from one instance where I was talking with a kid and his family was supposed to come in and we were supposed to have a family session that day. And his mom couldn't come in because she had just been in court that day because her oldest son had just been um, sentenced to... There's it was a short term, but four years at grade of her. I was talking with the, the younger brother who the family was supposed to be with, and I said, well, how are you feeling about this? Like, what's going on in your mind? He said, you know, at least I know my brother's safe now. Hmm. It's not really, we're talking about how terrible it is to, to put these people in there, but sometimes we're saving them.
2: I mean, furthermore, uh, this is you'll hear a lot of men talk like this in the chapel, right? And Because often when they're, especially evangelicals, when they testify, and like you realize who their peer group is, right? As these men who are in their 50s and 60s and are alive in the chapel, and everyone that they used to run with on the outside is dead. Uh, similarly, um, the kinds of, This is an old trope, but it's true. The kind of opportunity to reflect on life and to pursue the good life that whether it be in the chapel or in a way that lines up more with the kinds of practices uh, that I'm indigenous to, the Villanova program, that the men there at Greaterford have opportunities unlike the opportunities that that their counterparts on the street would have for exploration, for, you know, spiritual growth for for edification, right? In some sense, because they're partially freed from the demand, I mean, these men work jobs, uh, they need money, Uh, you need to work a full-time job just to be able to like call your sweetheart on the phone because of the exploitative uh, uh, telephone contracts. But they are to some extent, they're not paying mortgages, they are in these structures in which they are able, that it is one kind of little strange, you know, between graduates sc- moving back and forth, between graduate s- school and, and the prison, when I was doing my research, these are two strange backwaters where everything is not <laughs> utilitarian, yeah. where there are kind of structures to explore the nature of the good. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a smaller. It's like a again, a small perversity, you know that calls attention to um, the, the the broader kinds of uh, uh, broken social structures, of which the prison is but a small part, and 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 maybe from he- from you, I'm hearing that like it's a small part that gets it's it gets too much attention relative to these other things. That it's like easy to give it attention relative to these other things. Like, what's your intuition? Are you
0: afraid to say that one more time. Are you thinking like
2: you just wanted to add into the conversation the idea that? These kinds of um, these kinds of injustices and this kind of systemic suffering is in no way limited to the prison.
1: That yeah, it's I mean, I have. I mean, one quick thing. I really share your frustration, uh, and uh, I would love and I'm very grateful to the Villanova Grinnberg Program. But we don't do much as a university about the connection to the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and you know what happens before and after prison. And there's, so there's a kind of there's a weird reification of the prison, <laughs> and of course the danger of really linking education essentially to that environment, and I mean education really on in both ways. But the I mean the real realization is the perverse economy <laughs> that is only a very, it's a very few neighborhoods in. Philadelphia that supply just an extraordinary amount of the population of greater birth. And it, it really, it, it's in a circuit. It's not just isolated. And you know, I do think, yeah, I think part of my my political uneasiness is precisely you know, the, the problem of focusing just on what happens in the prison, as important as
3: that is. I'd like to speak to this gentleman. Um, I taught here for 45 years, and for at least the last 20, in every course that I possibly could, I had my students read the 1948 United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it was important, of course, because the UN was founded in 1945 as the war ended, and that took care of relations between nations. But there was a need for something like a new morality. You know what are people like? What are their needs? What are their rights? It's not the same thing as a full-fledged morality, but Eleanor Roosevelt and the uh, UN worked out the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And if you read it, the first 21 support democracy, but from 22 to 29 they support socialism, and in part because Russia was one of those. Nations working out this out, and the Russians and Eastern Europeans wouldn't let us get away with just supporting democracy. Okay, what happened in the United States to twenty-two through twenty-nine? The right to health care, the right to an education, the right to a job, the right to food, and clothing, and so forth, paid vacations. What happened to them? Well, the typical Republican says it's a wish list. They're ideals. They're not rights. Uh, Wouldn't it be wonderful if people could have them, but our capitalistic economy doesn't generate them automatically. At any rate, I I became convinced that we are a deficient nation, our economy isn't good enough because it doesn't guarantee those material human rights they're called as opposed to formal human rights. The formal human right, in the formal human right, you say to the government, don't touch me. Keep away from me. Leave me alone. In material human rights, typically you have to say to the government, help me, help me because I'm sick and I don't have the money to go to a doctor. Help me because I can't give a complete education to my kids. Help me because there's no jobs out there. So when I said I was already convinced of uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow and its bad treatment of blacks, it's because two-thirds of Greater (coughs) Graterford are black people (coughs) <coughs> two-thirds of them live in these terrible neighborhoods. When the blacks moved in, the factories moved out. Um, go to St. Francis Inn sometime, those of you that are around here, and you'll find around St. Francis Inn very big factory buildings that are empty. They're empty because when the blacks moved up from the south, there was a transition period where there some jobs for them. Now all those factories are empty, and that's one of the main areas um, like uh, Tom, um, Schilt? Tom Schilt comes from Kensington from that area. Um, it's one of the worst parts of the city now. Capitalism doesn't work the way it should. We need to regulate it or change it or do something. But we're deficient in that. Did you
1: want to say
2: other sorts of questions or concerns?
3: Josh, can we ask Joyce about, uh, she has done art with them. Mm-hmm. To what extent is the art religious that they have done for you, Joyce? Um, let me think.
4: Explicitly religious, um, mm-hmm. there's few. Okay. But definitely, um, I think implicitly Okay. In, in their artwork.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, one thing that I w- one would say is the comment you made about that we've, the inmates have now, are going out and teaching others kind of thing. Um, the, there's a group, I don't know if you know the Restorative Justice Group, mm-hmm. they're doing amazing work. Um, it came out of a, a, class that I, that I taught, and now they're doing these workshops, and I was at a workshop two weekends ago, but these men are doing amazing work, and I really wish somehow Villanova could get reconnected to them, because Haverford has taken that over, so to speak. Um, but they do um, first-level workshops, second-level workshops. <coughs> mini workshops because what they the men have noticed themselves is that these uh, parolee violators, are coming in they're only there for three to six months but they can't do the whole course they do this mini workshop for three days but um they need to get that published somehow or get that out there and the big question around that is why is it successful when it's done by the men it's very similar to the question I think you were asking. What is it that makes this experience what it is? Um, so what, I mean, what know what we can do, or if there is anything we can do to support that. But they're doing amazing work
6: there. I was just going to go back to Jim's question about what are we called to do in this environment, and those listening to what you felt called to do in terms of the relationship with these men and. I often ask the students who go in, because I, I link up students with a tutoring program, GED and literacy. And um, I often ask the students, and we talk about the degree program. I often ask them, I don't need you to answer this me, but I need you to think about what in your mind makes these men deserving of the college education that you work so hard to get. You know, you studying in high school, you're taking out loans, your parents are paying $57,000, what what makes this the right thing to do? And then I think, Jim, you, know, you raising another question about well, while in doing it, for whatever reason we're doing it, what are we called to do in that doing? And I'm not sure what I hear is how stunned we are or how voyeuristic it is to be in this sort of different environment. Um, I'm not sure we know why we do what we do. And We're not asking those questions, how can we answer what we're called to do? Mm -hmm. So I guess I would like to see those people who teach or engage enter more thoroughly into that conversation. And then secondarily to that, what is then, what is needed by those people, and how can we respond? So I I think we do it, but we're not asking those questions. Like the restorative justice program, what better way for us to be engaged? But I think it's important where do we go from here is yeah. to keep at
1: it. Yeah, I think it's such an important point, and this is part of what Josh is, is doing in, in Montreal in May, is to begin to have conversations with people who I mean, yeah, I mean, you put it perfectly nor in my experience, is that I, you know, I had certain kind of low level, okay, you know, I'm going to do these set sort of courses. The question of what I am called to do happened from within that context. And I don't think it's necessar- I don't think it's necessarily an answer. That I think it's fine for individuals to come up with it. But I think more it's a it's a calling that's better served by the self-consciousness of, of a community, right? Which actually, in some ways, is already in place. It's just <laughs> the articulation's not quite conscious. And I think you know. I, and I think much more can be done. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's lots of things that are happening in Villanova that don't necessarily get coordinated in ways that I think framed the question of education in a less panicky way <laughs> that the normal sort of you know, economic worries you know, are going to incline an institution to frame the question. So I, I, I think that's really a, an important point is to be able to try to find, it, it realize who's already in your community and then how you can begin to, to expand that.
6: Because these men have done some bad things. Yep. And I mean, I'm not trying to be well-level, but they've done some really bad things. And that needs to be in the mix. Yep. As we deal with the wonderment of their curiosity and their self-selecting nature of wanting, to, wanting more from life or wanting to give to the community or prison. But we, even this, and I don't want to say despite that, because so that's a very bad way to putting it, that with that, mm-hmm. with them, in what they have been by nature or nurture, Entered into that love needs to be there, yeah. and how that gets, how that love gets sort of put into them, is by virtue of what we have: edu- knowledge, education, privilege. You, know.
2: you don't, you don't feel that the, the 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 terrible things that many of them have done aren't are like already in the mix to like a to a tremendous degree. In as and what much as you just use the phrase in, in the mix to like bring in that the mix into of
6: how we feel about what we're doing and how we feel about them. Because we can't forget like I don't I don't want the students to forget in a way that, that these are people who if you weren't in this environment and weren't loving them in this moment, these are the same people you meet out there and you have to sort of come to some philosophical like, what does doing bad things mean or where does it come from? What neighbours I uh, uh,
2: uh, uh, sorry, sorry. sorry. But but also I, I
4: mean,
6: does doing bad things define
5: you for the rest of your life? Those are the questions. Right.
4: Who, well,
5: you know, yes. Right, right. And does a legal system give a appropriate boundary between the people who do good, bad things, and people who don't do bad things? But there's
6: right. the questions that arise from right. acknowledging that they're yeah. innocent. yeah, innocent. yeah they're, I mean, there's sure. just a ton of um, political yeah. questions.
2: Yeah. It, I, you know, one of the things. Um, um, I feel like we've ridden ideology critique far enough, but but but, um, you know, it, these are especially when we're talking with students, you know, uh, allowing, creating the conditions through social theory to encourage people to reflect on their the conditions of their own existence and to think about the systems that they are always already implicated in seems like one of the things, based on my training, that I have to offer. But to model that. It's amazing how long that I've cared about this before I realized, before I suddenly realized that thinking about this question of what do I need to do that would be politically sufficient to the task at hand, and that framing that at the level of the individual, that the spirit of neoliberalism was speaking through me. It might also be the spirit of Platonism or or Christianity or whatever it is, but it is like to think of this as a problem that the individual in some way. Can, that that a response that an individual response can be commensurate yeah. is radically insufficient, and so it actually this it was only and, and it took me like ten years to suddenly figure that out, and it was because I started hanging out and organizing uh, with this group, Decarcerate PA. You all should Google them. These are like um, uh, these are folks based in Center <laughs> City that started like three years ago. Uh, it's a coalition of like you know. Uh, of over 100 organizations, but there's a core constituency. They're now uh, operating all over the state, um, and they are uh, they are working to decarcerate Pennsylvania. Right? They are, they they've a three point platform: no no new prisons, uh, decarceration, and then community reinvestment. Um, based on my own interest, I know that one thing that people in this room might have to offer that is that. It um, in my experience of it, in my experience of this group, is a little bit out of date. But they're very um, they're, they're disproportionately like young, urban, cosmopolitan, seculars. So um, uh, it would be great if if, uh, if they, they need to, to have more kind of people of of faith uh, organizing with them if they're going to you know if we're going to win. So that's one place to um, to to think about um, you know. Uh, coupling your own agency into an institution to kind of to maximize our effectivity. Um, the other question, the other thing, is then to like think about the institutions you're a part of and figure out ways to get those institutions more on the hook. So like with that regard, are are you are you guys um, like I I I love this program. I love the Villanova program. I owe I feel a tremendous debt to it. Um, are you guys satisfied with the level of institutional investment in the program what, what, what when we talk about wanting to see more whether it be vis-a-vis um, uh, restorative justice program how would you like to see Villanova what would you like to see Villanova go
1: well we're getting a new we're getting a full-time director that's a big deal oh we are uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and That is a and look, I made that secret, in the mm-hmm. fact that I think we have to do more with um, when they, when our students get out of greater group. Um, right now it's very restrictive for what they're it. basically, the it, it on campus program shut down. Uh, the course I did with yeah. was on campus. And right. it, it, that was great,
4: it, but yeah. that's, that, those days are gone.
1: So, I mean, some, some way maybe to reopen the conversation. Maybe once the
4: director gets yeah. in to, yeah. Yeah, to reopen that conversation with the superintendent, to maybe bring some
3: faculty out there or something, you know. Josh, uh, for a while some of us were hopeful that a Masters of Liberal Studies program would be offered out there. And it even looked like we had the President's endorsement. It, it was very iffy. It disappeared, but they would love that. Yeah, I think. Uh, you know, I wanted to say about this some of them did terrible things. This is a narrow Catholic example. But St. Maria Goretti, there's a St. Maria Goretti High School in Philadelphia, in fact, it's Goretti Newman, South Philly, was killed when she was 13 or 14 by a rapist who to rape her had to murder her. And if I'm not mistaken, after serving the Italian equivalent of a life sentence, he became a priest. And he Went around talking about the saintliness of Maria Goretti. Is, do I have that right? But it's it's some some famous Catholic girl who became a saint, whose murderer became kind of a celebrity in a religious sense. But it it makes you think about terrible people doing terrible things and it not defining their whole life. Uh, incidentally, that reminds me of the woman who was to be put to death last week. Who's the uh, uh, this is a yeah, of who, in, um, in Tübingen, who's who at yeah, Tübingen, uh, uh, that uh, came uh, to visit her? Moltmann, yeah, Jürgen Moltmann became a buddy of hers, he's a very big thing in theology. Yeah, and the same thing happened with a, a woman that um, George Bush, as governor of Texas, put to death. You know, she became very religious. And in her case, it was the leaders of the Southern Baptist movement who were convinced that this woman is one of the best Christians we know. And, you know, Billy Graham types went to bat trying to keep her alive. George Bush, of course, would have none of it. But people do change in prison. Their initial acts might be really bad, but that's not the whole person.
1: Uh, I think at this point I I, want to thank you all for coming, and thank Josh for facilitating this great conversation. And uh, please get some food on the way out uh, if the spirit
3: moves. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you for coming. Thank Thank you.